This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you can Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I am excited for this interview. We often talk about real estate here. Uh, We dream of one day owning real estate. The great news is until you can afford that home deposit, you can invest in real estate through the stock market. And we've got an expert here to help us understand this world. It is our absolute pleasure to welcome Chris Bedingfield to the studio. Chris, welcome. Thank you very much, Bryce. Alec, great to be here. So Chris is the Principal and Portfolio Manager at Key Global Investors. He has more than 30 years of experience working as a real estate specialist with a background in investment banking, equities research and investment management. He's co-founder of Key Global Investors and co-launched the Key Global Real Estate Fund in 2014 that we're going to be unpacking today. So Chris, before we get into uh, the world of real estate investing, we always like to start with the story of your first investment. So to kick us off today, how did you get started? Oh my God, it's a shocker. Um, so, so uh, I left school and I didn't go. To, I didn't know what I was going to do to be honest. So I, I took a year of work and I worked for this little merchant bank called Rothwells. And now your audience would be too young to remember, but this was like high flying nineteen eighties West Australia Inc. Um, uh, really dodgy loans, but anyway, I, I was just. Believe it or not, my job was to courier. This is you know when faxes were not even that that uh, used. I used to courier documents around the city. I was just a runner anyway. So I earned a bit of money, and they said you should invest. You should invest in Rothwells, and so that's what I. So I bought some shares in Rothwells, which I think you know it was like September. 1987, so it was like a month before the stock market crash, and of course, um, it was it was only downhill after that, so it wasn't good. And so, Chris, um, following on from first investments, you've obviously then had plenty of experience in in, your, in markets and figuring out what uh, investment style works for you. So, how would you define your investment philosophy? Again, I, I when I left uni, I you know, working stockbroking and I was a research analyst and I fell into real estate, to be honest. Um, so my background is just finance and accounting economics. I didn't have, I didn't study real estate at uni. 
And when I was sort of working in that stockbroking area, I started investing in all sorts of things, technology stocks and um, oil and gas companies, resources. And, and what I quickly discovered and what shaped my philosophy was that, you know, stick to what you know and what you're good at. And if you're not good at it, then let someone else do it kind of for you. You know, I'm not an oil and gas specialist. I, I don't really, I'm not really on top of tech, but I do understand real estate. And so, you know, pretty early in my career, I just started focusing, just investing in the real estate. You know, I think that's the biggest thing you know, individually, what I take is the hard bit is to just constrain yourself and just recognize what you are good at and stick to that. And, and you know, some things might be really exciting. You know, right now, energy is really exciting. And in the past, it was crypto. And um, it's really tempting to chase those things. But if, you, if you're not really good at it, you know, you, it's better to constrain yourself. And that's really been my philosophy. I, I love that idea of stick to what you know, and then find other experts to invest in those other areas. And I think, you know, for years, retail investors have sort of not been locked out, but, you know, there's been high minimums to, to access some of those areas um, or some of those experts and that's coming down and, you know, more and more funds are listing on market. So it's definitely become more accessible for, you know, pe- people like Bryce and I to access experts like yourself. Uh, and part of that is uh, key global investors that are, uh, you, you launched the first fund, I think, in 2014. So talk us through, uh, you know, going out on your own, putting out your own shingle and starting your own fund. How was that process and what have you learned about markets in uh, along the way? Yeah, happy to talk about it, but I just, I'll go back a little bit to what you just said a moment ago about, you know, retail investors, not just retail investors. It's, you know, the biggest and the smartest fund managers make that mistake as well. You know, they they start out picking stocks and then they're successful in that. All of a sudden they're commentating on bonds, they're commentating on macro, they're commentating on... The thing that gets me most upset is when they start commentating on real estate. With You know, you, every, every fund manager worth their salt has called, you know, the Australian property market a bubble for the past 20 years. It's just... Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a human thing. It's everyone does it. Don't worry about it. But in terms of starting key, yeah, I mean, I rolled out of investment banking in 2013. I've been doing that for around 10 years. And my business partner and I saw an opportunity in the global real estate space um, where... You know, it's a massive market. Like global, listed global real estate is bigger than the Australian share market. Like yeah. in terms of market yeah. cap, and there's nowhere near as many participants. Like there's millions of fund managers trying to eke out returns in Australian share market, but global real estate really is a is a niche area, and there's not that many people looking at it. So it's hugely inefficient. And so we started in 2014 with that opportunity, and we we decided that instead of trying to beat index and an index like what most of the peers try to do, we just set about with a philosophy of trying to do a CPI plus five strategy. And uh, so we, we, we started that on two th- in 2014. We went out, we got our own license, we binded our own presentations, we um, became, you know, we, we outsourced compliance, we wrote our own investment memorandum. And um, and then in 2014, we seeded our strategy, um, which is a, an index unaware concentrated global real estate strategy. We seeded it with our own money. Um, have never taken a cent out since. This is back in 2014. And um, and uh, and then we, we managed to get the three Fs. Like every fund manager that starts out, you, you, you need the three Fs to get going. Um, family, friends and fools came in and, <laughs> and, uh, and we got the fund going. And we just started building track record and we, we, we got some interest from, from people in the marketplace because our 
early performance, thank goodness, was very good. And uh, and then Ben along about a year later, 2015, uh, and we formed a joint venture with them. They take care of all of the, you know, back office and, and marketing and they converted our fund into a PDS. So we have, you know, daily pricing. People get in and out of the fund on a daily basis. And, uh, and really, we just sort of built the business from there. And um, it's been a blast. I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I wish, my only regret is I wish I did it earlier. Um, you know, it's uh, it can be scary going out on your own, but it can be a lot of fun and a lot of stress. And I don't really see it as work. It's just it's just an adventure. So, Chris, for those sitting there at uh, at home listening to this at the moment without any sort of real estate exposure in their portfolio, what's the sales pitch as to why real estate? Why should we consider it as part of our portfolio mix? There's a couple of things. I, I push back against the idea that if you're going into global real estate, it's kind of like a proxy for Australian real estate. I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about Australian real estate separately. But the, the pitch for global real estate is that it's, you know, it's it's huge market. It's, it's inefficient, as I was mentioning before. And if you look at the long-term returns for global real estate, it's it, they're very, very good. In fact, if you just look at this century from 2000 to 2021, say the last 21 years, global real estate has outperformed Australian equities, it's outperformed international equities, it's outperformed infrastructure, it's outperformed uh, bonds, it's outperformed gold. So if you sort of think about the main asset classes, it's actually been a really good performer. And don't forget, in that time, we've had the GFC, which was you know bad for real estate. We've had COVID, which was really bad for a lot of real estate. A lot of real estate companies were asked to step up during COVID. And I would just say to people, it's a, it's a if you're thinking about it in your equities mix, if you're thinking like Australian shares, global shares, infrastructure, um, global real estate is actually a pretty pretty good part of that mix. But I, I would treat it separately to say, you know, buying a home in Australia or buying an apartment in Australia I, because global real estate, it's massively diverse. You know, when you, in our fund, for instance, we have exposure to things like data storage and self-storage, manufactured housing, which is really a, kind of a weird sort of sector, <laughs> um, but also life sciences. So, you know, those things are just not correlated with traditional real estate. They, they are very different. And so um, I would just say to people, you know, you need to sort out your real estate situation in terms of where you live. That's one decision. And then separately, and when you think about investing in Aussie shares, global shares, et cetera, you know, that's where you think about the global real estate as, as exposure. Now, Chris, you, you've kind of already answered it, but I do just want to ask the question anyway to make it a little bit explicit because yeah. uh, everyone dreams of owning real estate. Uh, less people dream of owning REITs. <laughs> uh, but I want, you to, <laughs> I want you to make the case for listed real estate as, oppo- uh, as opposed to its sort of unlisted uh, peer. Why, why listed real estate? When, you, when you're thinking about unlisted um, commercial real estate, you sort of get locked up. You don't have that liquidity. I think that's the that's the biggest issue. And you don't have a lot of choice either. Um, so in Australia, we have a really bland kind of asset mix in commercial real estate. It's it's office, industrial or retail. And when you go listed, you 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 just have incredible diversity across different types of asset classes and geographies as well. And I think the other thing to take into account is also you know currency. You know, you get currency diversification as well. So the big thing there is is that you just get this diversification, you get liquidity, um, you get diversification of companies and managers and currency as well and and choice, you just get this great choice. To give you an example, one of the best things to have owned in the last 25 years in the United States was self-storage. Self-storage is like 
as as it sounds. It's they're just simple boxes where if you're moving house and you need to, you know, store your furniture for a couple of weeks, or if you're going overseas, you need to store. You just you pay your rent, you put it in a box, and you go away. Mm. And, you know, that business in the United States, if you bought a company called Public Storage um, in the US in the 1990s, you would have killed the killed the index. You would have wiped out, you would have outperformed the NASDAQ, you would have outperformed S&P, you would have outperformed everything. It's a wonderful, wonderful business. Right now in Europe, Europe has got uh, its, its, its self-storage industry is right at the beginning of, of that cycle. It's like going back in time in the US and being able to, you know, you know, invest in those companies, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so, you know, those opportunities are, are really, really rare. Uh, it's very hard to get access to them directly uh, as an investor, but in the listed space, you can get access to them. And uh, in those those sorts of stories, those long-term, you know, 10, 15-year secular growth stories uh, are just not available in the unlisted space. And uh, I can say the same for senior housing. The population, I know your your audience is, is at the other end of the spectrum, but the first of the baby boomers is turning 80 in just three years' time. They're going to need senior housing. It doesn't matter what central banks do. It doesn't matter what prime ministers do. It doesn't matter what uh, presidents do. The population is just getting older every day. And that silver tsunami, we like to call it, is coming. And senior housing is just a really great way to do it. And you just can't get access to it in the unlisted space. Mm. But in the listed format, you can buy companies like Ventus, which is a $30 billion company, um, expertly managed, a massive portfolio, you know, sensibly geared, and you, you can play that cycle in the listed space so much more easily. Love that. The silver tsunami. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my parents. Um, so... <laughs> Chris, let's turn to uh, the macro environment. We've seen um, interest rate rises um, occur around some of the major economies globally. We've seen five consecutive months of rate rises here in Australia. So I guess simply what does this mean for your investment approach and how are you actually thinking about the macro environment at the moment? Uh, I think one of the best things that investors can do, if you're a long-term investor, I would pay less attention to the macro environment than, than what a lot of people do. I mean, it's great for clicks and it's great for, you know, people to sort of like get, get their attention to talk about what central banks are doing here and there. But it really is, you know, if you're a long-term investor, it really is just noise. If you look at the, if you look at the long if you look at the long-term returns, say, in the let's take the US market, the S&P 500. If you look at the total return of the S&P 500 between 2010-2020, 100% of your total returns came from dividend yield and earnings growth, 100%. There was no sort of PED rates or re-rates. There was no none of that. And you think about that period to, between 2010 and 2020, you had quantitative easing going on around the world. You had interest rates, you know, falling secularly going around the world. How many times people were talking about all this nonsense and all that really mattered was dividend yield plus long-term earnings growth. <laughs> and if you think about share markets over a long period of time, that's, that's pretty much the same thing. And I would say exactly the same thing about real estate. Uh, people get caught up thinking that real estate is just this big interest rate driven sort of story. Um, and nothing can be further from the truth. I, you know, the best performing real estate market, residential real estate market in the world right now is Turkey, which is up 100% just in the last 12 months. And interest rates in Turkey are 15%, 16%. Mm. Um, but one of the worst residential performing markets in the world right now is Japan. And interest rates in Japan are zero. You can sort of get caught up in this this idea that interest rates are really important and the macro environment is really important. But if you're a long-term investor, you, you need to, you know, just get the asset class right, get the initial valuation right. And so long as you've got a bit of a growth story and your initial yield is okay, that's where your total return 
kind of comes from. And so, you know, I, I sort of disarm people a little bit when they say, you know, how's the macro environment affecting the way you think on the way you're investing? And, and my answer is it doesn't really affect the way I think at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so easy to just jump at shadows when, you know, central banks right now are raising interest rates, that's, but they're going to pivot at some stage. And are you going to be the person that's going to be ahead of everyone else when they pivot? <laughs> like, seriously, you've yeah. got no chance. <laughs> so so why, why play that game? It doesn't make any sense. Mm. Well, Chris, uh, you said talking about the macro environment is great for clicks. I want to ask you another question yeah. that's great for clicks about residential real estate here in Australia. Yeah. But first of all, uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So, Chris, before the break, we spoke about uh, why real estate, why listed real estate. Uh, we spoke a little bit about the macro economy and why you think uh, in conversations about interest rates are great for clicks, but maybe not for returns. I want to turn to residential real estate, real estate because it's always front of mind in Australia, but especially now because we have seen a pullback in some of the major cities, Sydney and Melbourne in particular, to, uh, after just an unbelievable couple of years. I know you invest in global real estate, but do you have any thoughts on Aussie residential at the moment? Yeah, I definitely always have thoughts on Aussie residential. <laughs> I think this is this is an asset class that, that I think people desperately need an education on because it just frustrates me whenever I read the economists or, you know, m- you know, equity managers becoming these soft-styled experts in this space and they really do miss the mark. The best way to think about residential or real estate generally um, but we'll, we'll focus on residential, is there's a cycle and there's a structural element to real estate. The cycle is, you know, driven by a combination of sentiment, fear of missing out or or panic, and that's, you know, largely driven by interest rates in the short term. We're seeing that right now. And so access to funding and cost of funding creates this sort of cycle um, over time. And, um, and right now we're seeing, you know, as you quite rightly point out, we're seeing some softness in, in residential prices. And I expect that to, you know, last at least for the next six to 12 months. And then there's a structural element, which which is very different. The way to think about real estate is that it, it prices itself around replacement cost over time. If you can buy an office building in Sydney today for, call it, you know, $100, um, and, that's, and it costs $100 to build, right? In 20 years' time, if it costs $200 to build, it's going to be priced at around $200. Otherwise, the development equation doesn't stack up and and you'll never get another office building built in Sydney ever again. When you explain real estate in that context, people kind of get that straight away. And what they miss in that conversation is you haven't mentioned interest rates once 
in that conversation. So what happens is that prices move around replacement cost over time. And that's why, from a macro point of view, we don't really worry about interest rates too much. If we, if we buy our underlying investments below the cost to build, we're going to be protected to the downside and we'll get a CPI plus lift to the upside over time as the cost of build gradually increases. And so when you're thinking about real estate in Australia, residential real estate, for a variety of historical reasons, we've made it extremely expensive to build in this country. And that goes down to you know planning, government sort of charging taxes and rates and charges. Cost, to build a house in Sydney uh, out near the dingo fence, it costs you know, 40 cents in the dollar of the construction cost to government rates and taxes and charges. Wow. You, you need to, th- you, so yeah, that's why you get these, you know, international investors come down saying that it's a property bubble because they compare the price of housing to, I don't know, the price of housing in Texas and it's a completely different cost structure. You might as well compare the price of cigarettes in Australia versus the price of cigarettes in Texas, which is, <laughs> you know, wildly different as well. And so when you think about real estate in Australia, that's that's the secular, that's the long-term trend of what's going on. And so in the short term, yeah, interest rate's going to move the market around and, and sentiment and um, headlines. And, and I, I've got very little doubt that over the next 12 months, we're going to see some more softness in the market. But if you're thinking about three, four, five, ten 10 years out, um, you're going to have that sort of replacement cost. The cost of construction is always going up and that's that's kind of like your underwrite. And we're seeing that right now in the data. We're seeing the market, we're seeing two things. We're seeing prices are falling and we're seeing building costs going up. And so is it any surprise that we're seeing housing approvals fall? You know, is it any surprise we're seeing housing starts fall? Because developers aren't silly, right? They're not going to put $100 into a project to get $95 back. Mm. So they're going to move away and they're going to start doing other, they're going to start building other things, right? And then and then, uh, then you'll, you'll continue to get population growth. Uh, we're going to need more houses. And so the, the value equation has to stack up again, right? Otherwise, the developers won't come back and build more. So, you know, I would just say to people, I would say a couple of things to your listeners. I would say, look, Beware of people who are not experts in this space trying to scare the bejesus out of you by talking about a house price crash, right? Um, that's the first thing. Like, make sure that they're experts at what they do. I mean, I, I'm incredibly cynical when it comes to this. I just find that, you know, sometimes you get a money manager who says, you know, house prices are going to fall 40%, so you should sell your investment property. And then, oh, by the way, I've got a product that I can invest and I'll just charge you a nominal fee, right? <laughs> Yeah, it just really. And then the other thing that annoys me is these same managers who, you know, sell their businesses, they make a lot of money out of their funds management business. First thing they do with their money is they buy a great big stonking house in Mossman or or a great big stonking house in the eastern suburbs, you know. So, you know, do as I say, not as I do kind of mentality. Mm. So I would say just be wary of those sorts of commentary. And I know there's another global fund manager on the Fin Review today talking about another, you know, big downturn. But anyway, uh, and the second thing I would say is just think about it from the point of view that, uh, so don't dream for a crash, right? <laughs> I suppose that's the thing. Australian real estate is underwritten by, unfortunately, and that's a policy problem, is underwritten by very high cost of production. That's what really drives it over time. And if, if you buy sensibly, if you gear yourself sensibly, if you're patient, you know, you'll look back in five, ten years' time and you'll realise, you know, hell, that's that's actually turned out to be, you know, better than I thought. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, for people that are sort of thinking about, you know, making the plunge is that there's a lot of talk about how investors get this unfair advantage of tax breaks in terms of capital gains tax and, 
a negative gearing tax break. The best tax breaks in this country by far is your principal place of residence. It's the last tax-free asset you you, you have. And, um, and, and so I would never, and I have done this many times, I have many people say, I'm saving for a deposit, I'm going to put my money into your fund, you know, and, and, to, and I'm just like, just find something <laughs> because you, your life choice is you, you're going to rent forever or you're going to buy. And mm. so you, that MPV cost is there whether you like it or not. So, yeah, I just think about it in that context. So let's move to the commercial side. There's a lot of uh, change in that space. There's been some pretty um, interesting, not demographic, but change since um, COVID took place with the work from home uh, shift and and the debate around will people uh, be moving back to offices in the CBD or is there the satellite approach now, warehouse boom, e-commerce, there's plenty happening in that space. So let's start with the work from home debate. Which side do you Mm. sit on? If the question is, are people going to work from home or are office values going to be okay? The answer is yes. And that's a deliberate sort of way of framing the question. (laughs) Both are true. Both are true. So I see a scenario, uh, and we've written a lot of papers on this. We see a scenario where work from home is is here to stay, you know, in some way, shape or form. I think employers have to be, you know, very flexible about about that. And and at our business, we we have a work from home policy and we find that productivity is fine. So that's staying. So how does, so why are office values going to be okay? Well, when you think about it, and we, we had to do this whole process ourselves when we think about our business. When you start initiating a work from home policy, the, the second question is, well, how much space do we need in our office? And the answer to us, and I think the answer for a vast majority of office tenants is the amount of space you need is exactly the same amount of space you needed before. The, the provision of space you need as an office tenant is for the maximum number of people in the office, not the average. Again, you see some commentary where um, you know, a, a company might say, you know, people are going to work from home. We're, we're going to allow people to work from home two days a week out of five. So that's a 40% reduction in demand. Well, that's not true because if people decide to work from home on a Friday and a Monday, Friday is very popular in particular, then everyone's in on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so as an office, as a, as a business and thinking about our office space requirements, it hasn't changed our requirement at all. I think what you're going to end up getting is you will get that work from home environment, but the amount of office demand is not going to change that much. And we're seeing it in the data. So we own a company in the United States um, called Empire State Realty. It's, as the name suggests, it owns the Empire State Building, (laughs) but a bunch of other office buildings in Midtown Manhattan. They're the volume, their leasing volumes are no different today than what they were pre-COVID, even though uh, on average uh, the buildings are only occupied on a weekly basis, only occupied 44% of the time during the week. Now, of course, that's 10% on Fridays and it's 95% on a Wednesday. It means that the, the, the amount of space you need hasn't changed. So the, the exciting thing for us is that in the investment markets, people are, are, are trashing office values. And so we're, we're taking advantage of that. Yeah, I remember looking at uh, Empire State Realty during the early days of COVID and from memory, they got smashed, didn't they? Yeah, so they did. I mean, office got, and that hasn't recovered. The other thing about Empire State, which is really interesting, is that it's office buildings, but up to a third of its income comes from its observatory deck. Oh, wow. uh, the observatory deck, yeah, the observatory deck. So the company makes pre EBITDA, makes about 400 million a year. And the observatory deck makes about 120 
odd minute of that. So um, it's kind of a play on New York. It's kind of a play on tourism. And with uh, with everything opening up right now, you know, people getting on planes again and travelling again, you know, there's a massive recovery coming in. Uh, you know, in terms of the observatory deck. So, Chris, moving to the other big, I guess, COVID story when we're talking about commercial real estate, uh, the warehouse boom. And we've seen some of the biggest players in the space like Amazon uh, spend a lot and get a lot of real estate and now pull back a little bit. At the same time, we're seeing a number of e-commerce related companies struggle. Shopify is a big one that comes to mind. How are you seeing demand for real uh, for the warehouse sector, I guess? And what are your thoughts on this sort of longer-term warehousing and e-commerce boom going forward? There's no doubt that the secular demand for industrial has been really positive for the space for a long, long time. And COVID accelerated that as more and more people, you know, shopped online and uh, companies needed to have good logistics and good warehousing to, to cope. I think that the problem is, from an investment perspective, is that the, the sector could be a victim of its own success. And what I mean by that is that uh, real estate companies have seen the, the secular trend as well. Prices have gone way above the cost of building um, in industrial, and that's attracting a lot of capital to, to build more and more of these warehouse spaces. And remember what I was saying before about residential you know, prices go up in line with inflation over time. Well, what's been happening in industrial is prices are way above the cost of goods. And and as I said, that's creating a real surge in supply. And it's a risky time in that space because that surge in supply is coming just as e-commerce is normalising. And we are also hearing, you know, in the US, retailers are saying they have way too much inventory. They stocked up during 2021 um, as the consumer came back post-COVID and now everything's starting to normalise and they just have too much inventory. And too much inventory means they have too much warehouse space. So you're hearing stories like Amazon saying they've sort of overshot their expectation of online retail. Shopify is saying the same thing. Non-e-commerce tenants like traditional retailers are saying they've got too much inventory and at the same time, We've got a lot of new supply being built because the sector, as I said, victim of its own success, has attracted a lot of capital and a lot of new supplies as a result being built. So, Chris, just before we move to uh, our final three questions that we close all interviews with, we're just interested if you could perhaps talk us through one or two of the key holdings. Well, key holdings, no pun intended there, but some, <laughs> <laughs> some of the major holdings in the key global portfolio, just to give a bit of insight into, yeah, some of the investments that you've got. I'll give you one local that everyone should know, uh, Centre Group, which is the owner of shopping centres in Australia, or Westfield Shopping Centres in Australia. Now, this is the other side of that e-commerce story I was talking about. It's really clear in a post-COVID world that retailers are struggling to make money online. Distribution costs are really high. Customer acquisition costs are really high. Um, they need physical bricks and mortar space to complement their online offering. And so we're seeing tenants coming back into shopping centres in a major way. And, and, and customers are coming back as well. 
because the, the novelty of sitting in front of your screen at home and clicking on things you want to buy probably wore a little thin during COVID. Um, and so people want to get out and about again. So and you can buy Centigroup at a massive discount. So it's book value. Uh, they just reported their results. It's really strong. Something a bit more interesting, though, um, and I touched on this a moment ago, is, is a company like Ventus, which is senior housing in the United States. Uh, 80-year-olds uh, are their target market, basically, for senior housing. And the first of those baby boomers turn 80 in 2025. So that, that population bubble's coming through. And the good news is that um, you can buy these companies below the cost to build. So there's no supply coming in senior housing in the US at the moment, or very little, I should say. And uh, the cost to build is going up, and you've got this huge demand story coming through. So great demand supply dynamic. A third company that we own, and we really like this space, is uh, single family housing in the United States. So post GFC, uh, the housing industry was completely decimated, not only from a price point of view, but from a industry point of view. A lot of people left the industry, a lot of workers left the industry. Now, in the United States, you need to build around 600,000 homes a year just to cope with replacement and general population growth. And post-GFC, they were building around two to 300,000 homes a year, so half what they needed. And they did that for 10 years. And so as a result, you've got this enormous undersupply of single-family housing in the United States. And as a result of that, you've got rental growth running at around 12, 13, 14%. And thank goodness you have Jerome Powell, who is raising interest rates and restricting supply even more as the builders, you know, run for cover as, um, as they're worrying about higher interest rates. And the cost to build is going up very, very quickly. So this is a really these are really simple businesses. Company we own there is called American Homes for Rent. They own roughly sixty thousand homes across the United States. They're ninety eight percent occupied, uh, and and the tenants are just paying their monthly rents. Uh, and unfortunately for them, but fortunately for us, their rents are going at about uh, twelve to thirteen percent per annum, um, and the market's under supplied and supply is getting worse, not better. Just just on that um, that sort of style of company, that listed American company that owns a lot of residential property, Bryce and I often chat about the fact that we don't really see that in Australia. Now, that might be our naivety and there might be listed Australian companies that own a lot of residential real estate, but you don't really hear about it. You hear so much about how well Australian residential property has performed as an asset class, but then you don't really see REITs spring up that own a bunch of it. Do you, do you know why that is the case? Yeah, it's, you know, one of the best tax-free investments in this country is residential. It's rational for an owner-occupier to buy a house that has a yield of not much, hmm. uh, 2 3%. Because if you get a two three percent saving on you, you know, on rent, which is basically what the yield in your house is, um, and you get a little bit of growth. That's an after-tax return of about four or five percent. That's a pre-tax return of about eight or nine percent. So Australian yields are structurally lower because of our tax structure, essentially. And so in the US, you get much better yields. You get much higher yields. So the the company I was talking about a moment ago, American Homes for Rent, um, has a yield of you know closer to four, four and a half, five percent. Um, and so the yields are a little bit better. So we, we are, as an industry in this country, moving down this build-to-rent uh, industry, and I think you will see more of that product um, in the future. But 
the initial yields will be very, very low when you compare it, you know, to, to global peers. So, Chris, unfortunately, we have um, run out of time, but um, I firstly want to thank you for um, taking your time today to share with the Equitymates community. It's an asset class that, um, well, firstly, we'd love access to in residential space, that's for (laughs) sure, (laughs) but uh, that we don't often speak about a lot on the show. So thank you very much. But it is time for our final three, and we always start with a book recommendation. Are there any books that you would consider must read? Um, either in in terms of investing or or otherwise. Seven deadly innocent frauds of economic policy. Nice. Haven't heard of it. I, I think it's one of the most enlightening books anyone could read, and 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 I know that sounds a little bit inconsistent with what I was saying before about ignoring the macro, but it's really good from the point of view of understanding just how little macro kind of feeds through to investment decisions, but it also gives a great framework of understanding just macro from a policy perspective. Yeah, I, I couldn't recommend that book highly enough. It's by Warren Mosler and it's free. Oh, wow. So if you go what? to moslereconomics.com, um, you'll see a link to that book, Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds of Economic, Economic Policy. And, and uh, yeah, and it's a simple read. It's about 110 pages. Very, very simple read and very enlightening. Nice. Love that. Love it that it's free as well. Um, So the second question we always like to end with, forget the investment case for the company at the moment, forget its valuation, just purely on what the company is, what it does and who it's run by. What's the best company you've ever come across? I would say equity lifestyle properties. Okay. And, and why is that? It's an incredibly powerful business model. It's a business model where the company owns the land and the tenant owns the house. Oh, okay. And there's just so many advantages for that. So first of all, all of the depreciation costs, maintenance costs, and upkeep is to the tenant. The second issue is that the tenant's not going to leave anytime soon. And a combination of both those factors means that the business generates heaps of cash and is immune to the cycle and uh, is very, very recessive, resilient and, and very, very safe. So this business has never dropped its rents in 25 years. Um, the rents have only ever gone up. You know, we've had pandemics, we've had uh, GFCs, we've had uh, rising interest rates, falling interest rates. The business is an incredibly powerful model. You're basically land banking and someone pays you rent and and they take care of all the upkeep um, and you just get that land accretion over time. Chris, I I love that you uh, have explained that model so well because Bryce and I are looking at each other. We, um, We invested in a company that was trying to do something similar in Australia, Gateway Lifestyle Group. I don't know if that yes, name rings similar. a bell. Yeah, they got taken out by a big US uh, company, Hometown, I, I think it was called. That's right. Um, but you've just made the investment thesis more succinctly than Bryce and I ever could have. So thank you for that. <laughs> I don't know about yeah, that. The biggest, the biggest cost in real estate, it's a dirty little secret in real estate, mm. the biggest cost in real estate is depreciation. And if you can get someone to, to fund that depreciation for you, and then you get the growth and the cash flows. You, you cannot beat that business. If only Gateway was still listed. But, but Chris, uh, we, we have got to our final question. And uh, if you think back to your younger self, you know, starting out in investment banking, getting convinced to buy that first stock, what advice would you have for your younger self? Uh, back yourself. Just back yourself. It can be really scary to sort of put yourself out there from a business point of view. 
and starting your own company or whatnot. But if if you're young, what's your what's your downside? Really, <laughs> I mean, you, you fail, and 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 people kind of admire that you've had a go, and you always come back and and get a job again. Like I just think about my years as you know 20 30 year old you know whiling my hours away on on weekends and late nights for other people when you can do it for yourself mm, love that i just think back yourself like it, it's not there's a lot of very average people out there who have become very successful <laughs> and I, I don't mean this in a disparaging way there's nothing particularly special about a lot of people who succeed financially it, the missing ingredient nine times out of ten is they just back themselves well, Chris, awesome way to finish the interview, um, something that Alec and I constantly remind ourselves of here, uh, trying to launch a small business. So um, it's, it's a, yeah, a great reminder to, uh, to just back yourself in. So thank you so much for sharing your time with, uh, with us and the Equity Mates community today. You know, as I said, it's an asset, asset class that we're all very interested in and, and uh, always hearing from the experts is um, very enjoyable. So we do appreciate it and we certainly look forward to um, catching up again in the future. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, guys. It's been fun. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 